Welcome to LSEIQ, a podcast from the London School of Economics and Political Science. This is the podcast where we ask leading social scientists and other experts to answer an intelligent question about economics, politics or society. Are we all set to be automated out of our jobs? In the 1960s, the US cartoon The Jetsons depicted a future world where domestic drudgery and work was delegated to a range of labour-saving robots. 70 years later, and this future hasn't come to pass, but the predictions about the future keep coming. A 2015 analysis by the Bank of England found that over the next 10 to 20 years, up to 15 million jobs could be at risk of automation in the UK alone. In this episode, Sue Windybank asks, what exactly is the future of work? Leslie Wilcox is Professor of Work, Technology and Globalisation at LSE. I asked him how replaceable humans are in the workplace, and he set out the two schools of thought on the future of automation. One is that human beings will be replaced, and the, the, this school argues that the technology can be so developed that humans are totally replaceable on one extreme version by 2045 the great singularity will occur which is the point and when we no longer control the machines and the machines run each other and we become useless the other view is that machines have augmented human beings and played to the strengths of human beings augmented them but also done things that human beings are not so good at And these two schools of design now really shape the future. Dr Guy Michaels from LSE's Centre for Economic Performance has looked at the impact of the kind of robotic arms you find in factories. Picking, placing, painting, welding, that kind of thing. He described their limitations and their strengths. One of the kind of big advantages in in robot technology in um, in recent decades has been the ability to um, get improved three-dimensional movement. That's something that people are innately very, very good at, and machines are not. So the strengths machines have in just physical strength, in durability, in being able to repeat the same thing again and again, being able to work with smells and, and heat and the kind of things that we, kind of environments that we as people find unpleasant. Leslie Wilcox's research focuses on software robots, and he sees the future in augmentation. He argues that automation will lead to the rise rather than the demise of the knowledge worker. Well, first of all, it would take away all the time that you spend on repetitive routine tasks that people actually don't like doing and probably were never good at doing, certainly not as well as the machines that we've devised now, which would free up, liberate time for the things that we we like doing and which we're very good at, thinking, feeling empathy for people, uh, making judgments, gathering evidence of a personal kind, building on one's experience. And then machines would be designed to sort of fit with that, design it and amplify it. So, less boring work, we hope. Guy Michael's research provides more good news. Robots increase productivity and wages. Indeed, you know, the, the effects that we found were largely positive. Robots seem to increase labour productivity, they seem to boost wages. Uh, consumers also benefited from robots because robots reduced output prices, so these were all good things. There are losers, of course. Guy found that industrial robots do threaten the jobs of low-skill workers. He's also done some work on information communication technologies where he found 
In contrast, middle school workers were affected. People at the top of the, of, the, of the education distribution, these are the people who do things that are more non-routine, that, that you know, have more either creativity elements to them or things that are just harder to automate. Um, and that's, these are the kind of people who are likely to, to benefit. With information communication technologies, um, the kind of routine jobs that were replaced often are actually at the middle of the skill distribution. So that shows that not all technologies are alike. So will the robots hurt more the people at the bottom? Um, information communication technologies more broadly seem to replace jobs as such as you know typing jobs and and um, sometimes cashiers and, and work kind of work which is which is at the middle of the of the skill distribution. For those of us who do non-routine work, robots aren't coming over here and taking our jobs. Why not? Leslie Wilcox is sceptical both of the ability and the desirability of replacing humans with robots. The brain is a wonderfully involved uh, apparatus and uh, uh, it's very difficult to think of uh, how a machine could replace the whole brain and it's very difficult to think of how a machine could actually replace many of the distinctive strengths that humans have, especially into, with interaction in interaction with human beings, think of leadership, think of empathy, think of social interactions, and you start to see that the amplifying, augmenting type of design score has a real human purpose to it in a way that the replacement score doesn't really uh, have. And I think the problem with the replacement score is it's trying to do the impossible. And it turns out it's quite difficult to develop perfect technology. When you read about the upgrades and the version 2 and version 3, what is going on there is that you know, they, they have a, a rhetoric of, of optimistic uh, progress around that. What they're doing is remedying mistakes they made in the past. That's what they are doing. Uh, and, and because uh, there is a huge demand for, for new technology, You've got a short space of time in which to sell it before it gets upgraded or changed or something else comes along. So you're putting out imperfect product there. So why do some studies predict such dire loss of jobs to robots? Leslie looked at every study of automation and the future of work and found that they overlook two important factors. The first factor was that no one considered the impact of the exponential data explosion on the amount of work that needed to be done. And we're, we're basically uh, increasing the amount of data in the world at the rate of 50% per annum. Now, the, you need an awful lot of work to be done in order to manage that, that type of data explosion. The second thing that no one's factored in is the massive job implications of audit, regulation and bureaucracy. There is a gigantic explosion in that. There is no doubt about that and you, you feel it in corporations, you see it in governments, you see it on a worldwide basis. And that also has massive implications for the amount of work to be done. So if you add in the fact that the data explosion and audit regulation bureaucracy are reciprocal. They, they influence and reinforce each other. There is, in fact, an unheralded massive explosion in the amount of work. For anthropologist David Graeber, there's something else going on 
which has subverted technological progress, keeping us working, often in jobs that he argues are pointless. Having seen the Apollo moon landing at the age of eight, he's a little disappointed in the technology of today. We didn't know what sort of things would be invented. There was a kind of checklist. Of, it's, it's funny how it is, because we actually already have a list, anybody who reads or watches science fiction, of the kind of things that should have been invented. You know, like anti-gravity devices, tractor beams, teleportation, all that kind of stuff. Um, and, you know, I don't think any of us thought that we'd get all of them in our lifetimes, but it never occurred to us that we wouldn't get any of them. So I think that's really interesting because I think most people think that we're in an era of um, massive technological progress, but you say that technological progress ended in the 1970s. There was a profound shift. People talk about this historically around the end of the 60s, early 70s. Um, it was almost as if the moon landing, the definitive victory of, of the U.S. in the space race, allowed people to feel, all right, we've won that battle. We don't really need all this space age stuff. There seemed to be a kind of a moment of panic about the dangers, especially of automation, talking about what are we going to do when, when the robots replace all the workers? There seemed to be a sense of panic. He said everybody was discussing that at the time. Uh, and not only people on the left, like the Situationists and the Yippies were all you know, sort of slogan, let the machines do all the work that everybody was saying at the, uh, in the late 60s. But you know, it affected people who were actually running things. They were like, oh my God, if the Hippies are bad now, what's going to happen when the entire working class turns into Hippies? Oh my God, it's going to be a disaster. At that, around that time, you can see a shift of investment, first by the government, um, also a lot of research is funded by these sort of NGOs in between the corporate sector and government, which directed money towards information technology, medical technology, and of course military technology that had always been in there and continued. Um, so all the robotic stuff that we have now, I think someone told me that 95% of all robotics research in the U.S. is funded through the military. Well, which explains why we don't have robots that, you know, can walk your dog or do your laundry for you, but we do have drones that can blow people up. So what's going on? David explained to me the link between this lack of technological progress, the type that could really transform our lives, capitalism and Star Wars. I remember having this realisation about this when... I was watching um, one of those bad Star Wars prequels. I remember watching it and thinking, wow, you know, a terrible movie, but those are really good special effects. Remember those bad 50s movies with the sort of monsters pulled on strings? And, uh, you know, I mean, if those guys could see this, I bet they'd be really impressed. And I thought, no, they wouldn't, because they thought we'd actually be doing this stuff by now. <laughs> All we've done is come up with amazing ways to simulate it. So question is, why do we have these technologies of simulation, which have overtaken the actual you know, sort of space age technologies people thought would happen? And it seems to me that it has a lot to do with the financialization of capitalism, the particular form of capitalism, neoliberal capitalism, as they call it, which sort of corresponds to the period of financialization since the 70s and especially the 80s has been a form of capitalism which I think has always prioritized the ideological over the practical. Um, it's all about saying, you know, as Thatcher famously said, there's no alternative. There's only one possible way now we've learned to do things. So I think capitalism has become very, very conservative in this particular manifestation. Uh, any idea of profound change 
is a threat because the entire defense of the system is based on the fact that idea that you know, any nothing else would really be possible, or you know, maybe North Korea is the only alternative. You know? um, nothing you could possibly imagine that would be in any way nice. So as a result, you have to sort of balance between the need to constantly say yes, yes, we are technologically progressing, things are getting shinier and newer and better, and 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 subtly saying actually any real major change couldn't happen. And that's how you get, you know, like, look, there's a new iPhone. There's another new iPhone. There's an, you know, these tiny little incremental changes in order basically technologies of simulation. So is there a sense that something more sinister is going on to keep us busy and stop us asking the important questions? Well, I do think that's the case. I mean, if you look at a lot of um, the economic changes that have happened since the 80s, um, they're not that economically efficient. Um, look at precarious labor. You know, the flexibility is a term. We need more flexible workforce. Now, what flexibility means if you're on the receiving end of flexibility is you have no life security. You don't know where you're going to be next year. You don't I mean, all studies show that people who have no job security don't work as well. They're not as dedicated. They're, they're don't innovate or create. Pierre Bourdieu did a whole study where he showed that people who are in precarious jobs don't get involved in political parties. They don't get involved in neighborhood groups because you don't know where you're going to be or what you're going to be doing. So if they were intentionally coming up with a plan to depoliticize labor, that would be the way to do it. The gig economy, of course, epitomizes precarious labor. Alex Krutowski, social psychologist, technology journalist, and visiting fellow in LSE's Media and Communications Department in 2012, explored microwork for the BBC podcast Digital Humans. She spoke to me via Skype from Los Angeles about these short, on-demand contracts mediated by an app, Uber being one of the most well-known examples. For Digital Humans, they investigated a less well-known example called Imaginary Girlfriend. According to their website, Real girls for imaginary relationships. We spoke with a woman named Kashmir Hill. She's a really great journalist in the space talking about work and talking about um, micro work. And she basically signed herself up to be an imaginary girlfriend. And what that meant is that she had to send texts that pretended to be somebody's partner, whether it was a girlfriend or a boyfriend, um, because they had signed up for a service that basically meant that they could show friends and family that they had a girlfriend or a boyfriend when in fact they didn't, they were simply paying for the service. And she found that not only could she not survive being an imaginary girlfriend, she also found it a little bit disconcerting as part of the contract. She was not allowed to continue to communicate with an individual who signed up for the imaginary girlfriend service. She was only allowed um, five minutes to produce a single text message that would go into the canon of this person's relationship with this imaginary person. Microwork has other challenges too. One of the, one of the issues that was really raised though in the microwork um, section in, in, in our investigation about microwork is that the, the, the organizations like Uber, like the Imaginary Girlfriend Enterprise, they don't actually need to provide any additional support to the uh, to the person who is, is basically working for them. And therefore, you're kind of left a little bit high and dry because the, the employer has no responsibility towards you because, in fact, they're not your employer. The app is not your employer. Um, you are just simply using the app to be match made with people who wish to have the work done. This was thrown into question last year when a London employment tribunal 
ruled that Uber drivers are workers with rights to the UK minimum wage and holiday pay. Uber is appealing the decision. Alex also says that the trend towards increasingly flexible ways of working has an impact on how we psychologically relate to work. Gone are the days, ancient are the days, ancient history. I mean, the mists of time are the days where you are um, you are behoven to a single employer. So that indicates a trend away from a, a dedication to a single entity, to a single employer, an identification with that employer. With that identification, of course, comes the willingness to, to, to do things for that employer, to put yourself out for that employer. That sense of belonging to the community will ultimately mean that you will, you will become part of that community, you will do things for that community, and you will expect in return from the institution to, to kind of give you back the the identity markers, the things that keep you close to that that thing. Now, however, it's more like a dedication to whether it's a lifestyle or whether it's to um, an industry or whether it's to a particular discipline. So it's it's much more of a sort of an internalized identity that doesn't that isn't that isn't reinforced by a single um, by a single organization. And therefore people's uh, people's desires to be with those organizations, their, their dedication to that organization is far, far less, um, and their expectations of the organization. Alex explained how a conversation with a friend changed the way she viewed her own working life. Her friend was working at the University of Indiana when he decided to take a trip to see her in LA during term time. I was rarely in the US, and so for him it was an opportunity to see me without an extraordinary outlandish airfare. And so he just said, oh, hey, listen, I'll just, I'll come and, I'll come and visit you. I'm going to drive out to see you. I'm going to do my classes via Skype. And I'm going to, because that could be considered something almost like a, a sort of a, a lesser way to, to transmit the information. I'm also, while I'm visiting you, I'm going to do a few interviews that are relevant to the to the course that I'm teaching. And then I'm going to add value in that way, which means basically he decided that he was going to make his personal life um, more important or rather work for his work. And I always found that incredibly influential. Inspired by this approach, Alex has joined the ranks of digital nomads working from Italy, France and the US. I've simply time shifted um, my working life. Um, so like any freelancer, I have to organize my time. I have to decide when I'm going to answer those emails and when I'm going to focus on strategy. And I have to, to be quite vigilant about how I structure my day, um, bearing in mind that I'm waking up very early often to have meetings back in the UK. It's, you know, it's, it's great to be able to, to have the flexibility of, of being wherever in the world you want. So what is the future of work? In 1930, the economist John Maynard Keynes posed the idea that mankind would solve what he called our economic problem and progress would mean that we would face technological unemployment. He made his much-referenced suggestion of a 15-hour work week, by the way, because he foresaw that humans wouldn't know what to do with themselves if they had absolutely no work to do. Guy Michaels provides a reality check. Yes, I think, you know, I think uh, predictions about the, the death of employment have, have proved premature for, for quite a long time, whether they were kind of, you know, the, 
you know, the more optimistic predictions that Keynes made or the kind of more pessimistic, worried predictions that, you know, um, came around the 19th century, around the time of the, the Luddites and this kind of uh, fear that, that machines are eating up jobs. Um, so far, I think the, that um, we haven't seen that. So employment, levels of employment of population uh, in the West are as high as they've ever been. So I think that, you know, one, one thing to think about is that uh, machines also allow the creation of new jobs. And, you know, often there's this focus on destruction of jobs. But machines, um, partly directly because they're just things that you can do that you couldn't do in the past technologically, but also because machines make us more productive, they make us richer, and we can consume other goods and services that we couldn't before. People will always have things that they're relatively good at compared to the machines, compared to the robots. At the same time, I think that, you know, there is a problem that um, for some people, this kind of, you know, the best that they can do wouldn't necessarily offer uh, very attractive returns in terms of, of the kind of wages that they could get. And really that there what matters is what, um, what the other alternatives are. So how, how much other source of income a person has, how much uh, transfers the government gives and so on. Leslie Wilcox. We from our studies said, well, we think that everybody's job will be automated by 25% within the next five years. And even looking across all these jobs that are under threat, I, I doubt if 100% of the job is under threat. So what this implies is that you're going to get a restructuring of work, a work redesign as a result of automation. And you're getting new ways in which technology is going to relate to people. And as new technologies come through, people are going to relate to them. I mean, if you want an obvious example, think about the mobile phone, which didn't exist more or less on a mass basis 10 years ago. Look how people have integrated it into their lives and how it amplifies what they can do and their relationships with people. Well, that's the future of the automation debate, I think, automation and the future of work. That's what is going to happen in practice. Alex Krotowski's view chimes with this. Now, with everyone we've spoken to for this podcast, you know, we've been secretly hoping that someone's going to tell us that robots are going to take over. Robots are not going to take over. (laughs) I don't see robots taking over over our work. Um, I do see that there is that there are advances in artificial intelligence that mean that um, journalism is starting to be written by AI. You know, the Los Angeles Times here, its weather section is written by an artificial intelligence. I know that law firms are, um, they are starting to use artificial intelligences to do some of the, the traditional services that, that, that lawyers would do, but mostly it's contracting. It's not, you know, the, the high level cognitive stuff. As the, the sort of the, the lower cognitive load services go to artificial intelligences, that opens up work opportunities at a different level. Um, you know, we're not all going to be sitting around lazy, lying in the pool and, and kicking our feet back with a drink with an umbrella because the robots are doing it. That's not our nature. Our nature is to produce and to create. And, and that gives us value and that gives us worth as individuals. David Graeber's assessment of the future is more radical. So what's the answer? How do we move towards this utopian future where we work less? Is it the overthrow of this economic system? Well, that's what I'd like to see personally. Um, I mean, I think this economic system clearly has come to its limits. 
So sometimes it seems to me that the entire discipline of economics is is founded around answering the wrong questions. I mean, there are perfectly appropriate questions in 1880 or even 1935, but they're not the questions we need to ask now. You know, economics is based on saying how do you, what is the optimal way to allocate scarce resources to maximize productivity and have a reasonable level of distribution of the goods across the population. Well, nowadays we have a totally different problem, which is you know how to allocate like increasingly unnecessary labor in a fair way and make sure that there um in you know that the rapid increase of technology doesn't create a tiny elite and destroy the planet i think we need to go back to a labor theory of value but we need to start from caring um that you know i mean even if you're building a bridge you build a bridge because you care that people can get across the river and you know let's start from there if we start from there and and we get rid of this notion that you know productivity can be measured and is the thing which is most important um and and go back to a notion of of caring as our primary value i think that we can start reimagining what the economy is like so david graeber sees us as being in an economic system which without a radical overhaul will keep us working in jobs that prize productivity over meaning and value Leslie Wilcox argues that bureaucracy will mean that work is unlikely to run out but sees great opportunities for more rewarding work resulting from robotic augmentation. And Guy Michael says that robots can bring the opportunity for greater productivity and higher wages except for people doing routine work. They're in real danger of being automated out of their jobs. Alex Krotowski sees technological developments bringing greater flexibility in work, but also less responsibility and commitment between organizations and their workers. None of our experts foretold the end of work. Technology is just set to change and create different types of work. What do you think? Tell us using the hashtag LSEIQ. This episode of LSEIQ was produced by Sue Windybank, Tom Williams and James Rattie. It was based in part on the following research. Service Automation, Robots and the Future of Work by Leslie Wilcox and Mary C. Lassity. Robots at Work, a Centre for Economic Performance discussion paper by Guy Michaels and George Greats. And The Utopia of Rules by David Graeber. For more episodes of this podcast, all the associated links, and to subscribe on iTunes and SoundCloud, please visit bit.ly forward slash LSEIQ. See you next time when we ask, is social media good for society?